welcome to the Bent Bibliose podcast, where we chat with authors, book lovers, and each other about books, trends, writing, and so much more. I'm Tegan. And I'm Ashley. We are so excited to spend this time with you and to be a part of such an inclusive and incredible community. We are here today with award-winning author Shannon Garrity. Shannon is an artist, writer, editor, specializing in comics and pop culture. Her works include Narbonic, Skin Horse, The Zombie Gnome Defense Guide, and The Dire Days of Willoweep Manor, to name just a few. Shannon, welcome. We're so excited to have you here with us today. Uh, hi, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. So before we begin chatting about your graphic novel, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Okay, so I'm Shannon, and I've been doing comics and comics-related things for a long time now. I uh, did a comic. I've done a lot of online comics, um, starting with um, a daily strip called Narbonic that I did back in from 2000 to 2006. That one was about mad scientists. And more recently, I just finished uh, my online comic strip Skin Horse uh, with my co-writer, Jeffrey C. Wells. And that one is a, basically about a government agency that has to clean up against the mad scientists. I really like mad scientists. And I've done miscellaneous other things. My actual day job is um, I'm a freelance manga editor with uh, Viz Media, and I've worked on a lot of manga titles for them. I'm still working on them now. And I, Willow Wheat Manor is like um, the first graphic novel I've published with um, Chris Baldwin, who is an amazing artist I've known from way back as he was also doing web comics like way back in the dawn times. And I live in Berkeley. Um, I have a husband and a kid and a cat. And that's that's pretty much my entire life. I love that about mad scientists. I was really into um, Pinky and the Brain, which I know are a little bit different than a mad scientist, but that's what popped in my head. I was like, oh, Pinky and the Brain. I watched so much of that. I was super into Pinky and the Brain, and there's definitely an influence of that in narcotic. <laughs> well, there's nothing better. I, I just like that Pinky was kind of the smaller, smarter one in a way. <laughs> it was like, mm, I don't know about this. <laughs> I feel like that's often when my husband gets an idea and I'm like, mm-hmm. and he's like, yeah, we should do this. I'm like, mm, I can see this going real sideways right now. <laughs> so I know you already started talking about it, but how did you get into illustrating and writing graphic novels and web comics? And when did you know that you wanted to make that into a career? Wow. So I, I just always like to draw, which I think most people do. It's just that I, I never stopped. And I did like comic strips when I was in high school and I had a comic strip that ran like the youth section of the Cleveland Plain Dealer when I was in high school. I grew up mostly in Ohio. And then in college, I started doing a comic strip in college as a lot of people do. And then when like I got to the end of college, I was like, when I was getting ready to graduate, I was like, oh, it's too bad that I don't have an excuse to keep drawing comic strips. I had actually tried to submit a comic strip to uh, King Feature Syndicate, but my art was not great. And I got a, actually got a very nice rejection from Jay Kennedy, who was the editor, editor at the time and was very kind and nurturing to artists. But I was like, I don't have an excuse to keep drawing comic strips. It's too bad because I like drawing comic strips. And around that time, like web comics started to become a thing. And some of my like nerdy friends introduced me to web comics. And I was like, hey, I could probably do this. Uh, and at the time, a lot of a lot of the early web comics were like somebody's like college paper comic strip that they started putting online because this was back in the like the 90s and like a lot of the people who were online were college students who had like their first online accounts. So like as I graduated, I like started working on Narbonic from that and um, I graduated from college. I got an internship at the Cartoon Art Museum in San Francisco uh, where I still do some volunteering and um, my husband is actually the uh, the curator at the Cartoon Art Museum now. We met when we were both volunteering there. And um, so I got that internship and then I got the job at Viz to pay for the internship because it was not paid. And uh, I just like moved out to San Francisco and got like a URL and put like a really simple website online with my comic strips. And then I just started doing that. And um, I, I just kind of never stopped. <laughs> I, um, I don't know if I if I have like a career planned out or anything, but I've now gotten to the point that I, I I've done so much stuff in comics. I, I have like no other skills. So I have to just keep making comics or die. 
and uh, that's that's kind of where I am now like 22 years later I love that and that museum sounds amazing (laughs) mentioning the internet in the 90s and all I could think Mm -hmm. of was like MSN ICQ kids kids today yeah (laughs) never know the horrors of dial-up internet they won't (laughs) We tried, I, we actually, yeah, my kid is like eight and we tried to explain like modems to him and like how you, if you were on the, on the computer, you could not also be on the phone at the same time. And this was like an alien concept to him because the phone is just like a magic computer box anyway now. And the, the computer is a separate magic computer box and they don't, you know, they don't interact. They, they don't interfere with one another. And we had to explain this, like you pick up the phone and this horrible screeching noise would be on the other end because somebody was online. And yeah, I was on Usenet a lot. Um, that was where I started. Those were the first like online communities I was on. And web comics, I've only gotten into them um, fairly mm-hmm. recently, but I know a lot of them are just being published as like mm-hmm. hard, like hard copy. Yeah. Like sure. Laura Olympus, I think is right currently like the most everywhere <laughs> you know, laura olympus is like a bestseller it's huge it's it's really exciting to see yeah so what advice would you have for anyone who wants to pursue writing and or illustrating a graphic novel i mean like you know for comics and actually i guess this is true for writing too, the thing about comics is that the the bar to entry is pretty low there's like the, the money is terrible but if you want to make a comic you can make a comic it's not like that Nobody can, nobody's stopping you. You can like just get a piece of paper and draw something and like put it online or, or make a mini comic or whatever. It's um, the gap between like the big creators and the small creators is maybe not as large as it is in some other media. So it's, I mean, it's pretty, the, the best way to make a comic, like um, Kyle Baker, who's a, a great cartoonist, did a, he ages ago, he did a book about, um, making comics is called uh, how to draw stupid and uh, his advice for making a comic is like just make a comic he says like i talk to people all the time we say they want to make a comic but then they don't have any comics and um if you don't if you don't have any comics why do you really want to make a comic because it's it's actually it's not it's not like it's difficult it just takes some time and probably will not get you a lot of money or attention or fame or anything but you can do it you can do it and like um and my, my advice, my, my actual, like getting out there advice is super outdated. Cause I like started out online when I was like, when there were like three websites. So it was, it was a very different scene, but actually there's a lot of, there's a lot of opportunities for creators who just want to put stuff up online right now. And the graphic novel market is, is great right now. There are very few graphic novels. Like when I was, like, when I was growing up and like, it was pretty hard to find really, really great comics and like book form um so it's it's and now it's kind of exploded especially in like the ya middle grade uh world it's like all the biggest comics are like these kids and teen and tween graphic novels it's 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 a pretty exciting time actually to be making comics so i mean go for it (laughs) i can't guarantee success for anything because there's like success in comics is iffy but it's uh, it's fun I just love the medium so much that you know if you love it it's worth making something yeah I think that making money in something is always nice right but you have to have that passion to do it because that passion is what will sustain people through any like path they choose because if you don't have the passion to keep going it'll be easy to kind of give up I feel like it's yeah sorry I just like uh, I feel like I've always been like just successful enough that it makes sense to like continue going I've never been like super wildly successful but I'm always doing just well enough I always have like okay enough people like this I should probably keep drawing it like I've made an I've sold enough books I should probably make more books and there's there's always like just enough that, that it makes sense to continue going and now I have a graphic novel out which is great it's very exciting and I've more than I'm working on. So I feel like things are finally, things are sort of coming together right now. That's good. And speaking of the dire days of Willow Eat Manor, we love this graphic novel. It was so much fun. Good. And one thing I love about graphic novels and art in general is sometimes pictures and art can convey things that words alone can't always do. Uh, so Dire Days is illustrated by Christopher Baldwin. And I personally think that illustrations can add so much to a story. What are some of the most rewarding parts of seeing your story brought to life with art? Okay, so comics are comics are a visual medium. So, like the art is part of the story, and it's essential. It's an essential part of the story. Willow Wheat Manor is kind of like it was kind of the writing was 
sort of a collaboration as um, Chris had the idea initially, he had the concept of what he wanted to draw a story about and um, wanted to be about this girl who um, somehow travels to like a world out of, out of gothic novels because he wanted to draw gothic novel stuff and um, he had a concept that he kind of came to me so because he wanted he, to help him like develop it into a complete story with like a beginning and middle and end so we kind of brainstormed a lot and came up with different ideas and then I wrote a script and then he drew the script and uh it came out that way so the the end product is kind of like a collaboration of our it's a total collaboration of our ideas it's a melding of ideas that we had at different stages um that we that we kind of mixed together and I, i'm like it's like it's, it's it's it was a bit like the marvel method um that they used to do in marvel comics back in the old days where like um stan lee would like have a plot that he would describe and then jack kirby would like draw the pages and then Stanley would like write in the dialogue, which is kind of, it's, it's kind of an odd way to do it, but we kind of did it that way. We kind of went back and forth on what we contributed to it. So, I mean, it's obviously, it's super excited to see it. It was super excited to see it come to life. It was, it was really fun. There were a lot of things that I described and like, you kind of got it perfect. I did like little thumbnails of it. I thumbnailed the whole thing out too. I did sketches of every page. So we kind of, I didn't really want him to work from my thumbnails, but I did it partly for my own, reference that I know how to lay things out on the page and how, you know, whether what I was writing would actually work as a comic. And um, partly as a sort of general guide to what I wanted it to look like, I sent them to him just not to copy my layouts or anything, just in case he needed reference. And so he kind of looked at that sometimes, but for the most part, I just let him draw whatever. And I think the character designs are mostly pretty much his. Um, I did, I did sketches, the characters, but then he did, you know, whatever he wanted. So it's, there's a lot of stuff that I wrote out and like my dude, my, my, they, you know, I had very rough doodles of what I wanted to look like. And then he drew like an actual good version of it, which was very cool. He also made like the whole manner, the, the, the actual Gothic manse that the characters are in, in the story. Um, he created it as like, um, as like a 3d construction on the computer so it's like an architectural construction it's it's it, it, it works as an actual building is the thing he had he created like a whole 3d model and then drew over the shots of the model to get the room so that everything would it would work as an actual mansion and it's it's very cool the complete mansion is very cool looking uh we're actually working on the sequel right now and the sequel um not to give too much away, but like some more rooms show up in the mansion. And so he has to like come up with these creative ways to like fit these new rooms I made up into his, into the building, into the model that he's made, uh, which is, it's an interesting, I'm sorry, to, I'm sorry that I made him, I made him do this, but it's also fun to see him add this stuff, add these little, these add additions to the manor. I want to see those. Like, I want to see the 3D of the mansion, <laughs> the architectural. Cool. Yeah, we've done like presentations for like libraries and stuff a couple of times and he's like put some PowerPoints together where we can show off the 3D models and like animations of the model going around and it's pretty it's it's pretty amazing looking. It's, he did a lot he put a lot of work into this and it's really cool. Awesome. So could you expand a bit more on your writing process? But also I'm curious, um, were there points with the dialogue where like what he created with illustrations impacted or changed the dialogue at all in your writing? Sometimes, not a lot, but um, you know, sometimes, you know, just when Chris was, Chris was drawing, he'd come across places where what I'd written didn't quite work with the art. And then we had different ideas of how to deal with that. And that was, I mean, I was very, free to let him do what he wanted if something more needed to be added sometimes sometimes it's just like you have to add some more panels to explain things or to depict what's happening and sometimes it's changing the dialogue a little bit um but like the writing process the most important thing was really thumbnailing the whole thing out i've got a whole i've got a whole system now now i've written a few graphic novels and i've got a whole system where i like i have a plot outline and then I thumbnail a few pages and then I write the dialogue for those pages. And then I thumbnail a few more pages and then write the dialogue for those pages um, rather than doing all the thumbnails at once or all the dialogue at once so that uh, they kind of keep pace with one another. So I don't get too far away um, from that. So that so the art doesn't get too far away from the dialogue or, or vice versa. It sounds like there's just an incredible amount of work that goes into creating a graphic novel. I it is. It's not worth it at all, but it's, but I enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> it 
So for those who may not have read it yet, I know you touched on it a bit earlier, but can you share what the Dire Days of Willow Wheat Manor is about? Okay, so the Dire D- Days of Willow Wheat Manor is about this girl named Haley, who is really into gothic literature, like classical gothic literature, like, like Jane Eyre or um, Wuthering Heights, things like that, um, Castle of Otranto. And she rescues a mysterious stranger from the river. Oh, I'm sorry. This is my son, Robin. Who did say hello, Robin? Hi. Robin, do you want to describe what happens in Willow Wheat Manor? Well, and then once you say it's a mysterious person, well, she ends ends up in another dimension, in another dimension that's, that's, what she's been talking about. The, about the books he's been into. Yeah. Like that. He goes into a world that appears to be a world out of gothic novels. And there's a, yes, and the, and the house of Willow Wheat Manor, which is, has, has, is owned by three brothers and there's a bunch of other characters living there too. But things are not entirely what they seem. Nice. So Haley is such a fun and interesting character and one that Tegan and I can both relate to. So how much of yourself do you see in Haley? <laughs> Um, you know, yes, um, we, this was a character we kind of worked out, Chris and I, you know, we were brainstorming stuff and she generally gradually turned into just like this big nerd, but for gothic stuff. And yeah, no, I like, I, I, I am kind of an enthusiastic fangirl of many things myself. And so it's very easy to write an enthusiastic fangirl character. She's a fan. Of, she's just a fan of this specific thing that maybe not everyone is a fan of, but she's really into, into these classic novels and gets super into visiting Willow Wheat Manor. And yeah, no, it's, it's a, it's a very me sort of character, I think. So Haley adapts really quickly to being pulled into the pocket universe of Willow Wheat Manor. How would you react if it happened to you? I'm fascinated, but I'm not as into Gothic novels as Haley is. So I would not, I might, I would probably not know all the tropes and I would also be uncomfortable by the the lack of plumbing and electricity. I really like the present. I really I really like the present. I, I like um, modern amenities. Um, if I went back in time, I'd probably like to go back to like um, the the Jim Henson workshop in the 1970s, somewhere where there's um, a lot of creativity, but also a lot of plumbing. Um, but no, it would be it would obviously be very exciting, but also very confusing. Uh, I think if I went to a pocket universe like molded to one of my particular fandoms it would be something very different yeah I'm trying to think what mine would be that's <laughs> a question I'm like oh that would be such a weird mishmash of things I worry because I'm really into horror movies that's another of my things and um, I would not like to go to a universe of horror movies I hope I don't get sent there I think my husband would definitely be like the b-movie like sharknado type universe where there'd just be like weird flying sharks everywhere and little snake things. I always forget it was like Snakehead Swamp was the most recent one we watched together and somehow these creatures made when they bite people they would just somehow explode which didn't really make sense to me um, at all. That doesn't seem like a good evolutionary adaption but yeah no, I could live in the B-movie universe I could probably figure that out. The, the goal is just don't do anything silly, like go off by yourself or, or lean over anything to look. Don't do that. Don't inspect. Don't go in the basement. <laughs> so as we touched on already, Haley is obsessed with gothic romances. Her obsession is to the point that her teacher has to put a limit on her book reports on old gothic novels, or in this case, her fourth essay on Wuthering Heights. Haley's teacher says, for a well-rounded education, you need to read something that isn't a gothic romance. (laughs) Do you feel that in order to be a well-rounded author, you should be a well-rounded reader as well? Well, I mean, you know, Haley's teacher has to like, she has to produce like well-rounded students. So she has to go to read something other than a gothic romance, just like she has to get one of Haley's classmates to read something other than Sonic the Hedgehog fan fiction. But, you know, I mean, reading is, it depends on what you're reading for. If you're reading for fun, you read whatever you want. If you're reading to, you know, develop in different ways and maybe try to read different things. Um, I, like, I, I'm in the world of comics and there's a lot of, just, I feel like there's a lot of comics creators who don't read a lot of things that aren't comics and don't look at art that isn't comics art. And I think that's very limiting. It really helps to 
I think it really helps if you're if you're working in a particular medium or a particular genre. It kind of it kind of it, it, it's an advantage to be exposed to things outside of that medium and or genre because then then you have you know some influences and some perspectives that most people wouldn't because you know if you're the one comics person who's really into like Aubrey Beardsley illustrations that's that's makes you an interesting comic artist. Um, Colleen Duran is a great, great, great artist. Um, she's been doing these different um, adaptations of Neil Gaiman stories with, with Gaiman. And she's been doing them based on different illustration styles. Her book, Snow Glass Apples, is like the illustrations are based on this um, 19th century, then turn of the century um, Irish illustrator named Harry Clark. And like, there it is. There's only one comic that is drawn in the style of illustrator Harry Clark. Um, and that's, that's a, that's a special, you know, it's something a little different and wonderful. Um, I'm a, I'm a big Harry Clark fan, actually. So I was very excited when this book happened because <laughs> I lived in Ireland for a while and he did, and Dublin, and actually he did a lot of stained glass art that you can see around Dublin. It's very lovely anyway. Um, so that works. That's true for art and it's, that's true for visual art and it's true for writing too. If you have like writing influences that are different from the other people working in your particular genre that I think that that helps it helps your work to stand out. If you're if you're a writer, if you're a reader, I guess you can just read whatever you want. Really, it depends on what you want out of reading. Yeah, like I find that as with most people, I have genres that are my go-to that I really enjoy. But honestly, especially lately, I've been finding as I get more and more out of my like comfort zone for reading or out of my like box, I'm finding some incredible books that are becoming my new favorites. So yeah. it's always good to branch out a bit. So. When Haley's teacher is telling her that she must write a book report about a book that is not romance, Haley laments, but romances are so romantic. The darkness, the crinolines, the handsome, surly men. What is it about the romance genre that either draws you in and makes you love it or is just fun to write about? <laughs> this was so fun. It was specifically about like gothic. Well, the book is specifically about gothic romance, which is a, the kind yeah. of a very specific thing um I, I like handsome men i don't like surly men as much but um Haley kind of likes the surly men i think and yeah i just um i read a whole bunch of like classic gothic novels and maybe not so classic gothic novels to prep for this and just was writing down different tropes and coming up with fun things that i could include and it is a lot of fun and i like the i i, I like the drama and atmosphere probably more than maybe romance in the in the love sense i like the romance the sense of like a big sweeping sense of atmosphere and um as you get in some of these books um this is a little past like Haley is into stuff from like the 18th and 19th centuries but i recently read i read like um in addition to reading stuff like um jane Eyre, i read like uh, rebecca which is more recent it's from the 20th century by um daphne um wow i'm blanking on so many names i'm so many nervous uh Du Maurier. It's hard to pronounce French. Um, yeah, but I read Rebecca by Daphne Du Maurier. She's a great writer. Um, she also wrote some great horror stories, and I read a lot of horror stories into that. But uh, Rebecca is great, and it's just like dripping with this um, sort of modern, more modern Gothic atmosphere. And there's just there's just there's a lot of angst, and there's there's a lot of um, beautiful brooding, and there's beautiful brooding men, and there's murder and intrigue and horrible things happening and people being very dramatic and there's closeted lesbianism and like all sorts of all sorts of high dudgeon going on and I like do love that yeah I love um Rebecca like the Hitchcock Mm -hmm. one I haven't read I sorry I haven't watched the newer adaptation I I was like I was like ah well Ashley said this for me I was like but that's literally one of like I consider one of the perfect films and I'm like, why would you, it of all the things good. to touch, don't touch that one. And yeah, like, it's, the film is very good. And it also really captures the atmosphere of the, of the book. Um, yeah, Daphne du Maurier also wrote The Birds, which Hitchcock also made into a movie. And it's a very different story and a very different movie. I didn't know that she wrote The Birds. Uh-huh. Oh, my goodness. See, I read um, Frenchman's Creek and Jamaica Inn by her as well which are like also that gothic yes I, yeah, I've only, Rebecca is the only one of her novels I've read I've read a lot of her short stories and novellas mm-hmm. she, yeah. um, her, her story her novella Don't Look Now was also made into a very great atmospheric horror movie 
I need to brush up on my Demore. Interesting. Interesting writer. This is like, again, this is like another, this goes into like coming out of your comfort levels. I actually hadn't, you know, I hadn't read all that much romance and I hadn't read all that much like Gothic fiction before I started on this, which is like, you know, what Chris wanted to draw. So I had to learn it. And thought like I hated it. I liked it, but I thought I wasn't super into it, but it was, I discovered a lot of really great fiction reading this, these uh, reading stuff for this, for Willow Wheat Manor. Yeah. It's, it's really great books. Yeah. I um, never actually read Anne Radcliffe or those, um, yes. you know, the famous ones like Castle of Otranto. Oh, it's bananas. And <laughs> like, I only know of them as referenced in like Northanger Abbey by Jane Austen, like all the ones that her character, uh, I mean, Haley and her are pretty, like they would be peas in a pod there. (laughs) Yes. I have to admit that I am embarrassed to say this, but Willow Wheat Manor is kind of a knockoff of uh, Northanger Abbey, which is Jane Austen's most sarcastic book. Oh, it's amazing. Ashley, I think that might actually be the Austin book for you. Um, <laughs> but it's, uh, it's pretty cool. Um, so speaking of books, um, what type of books were you obsessed with reading as a teenager? Oh, definitely like fantasy and science fiction, especially science fiction. I was hells of into the end of that. And, then, and I also got into comics in high school. Um, I'm going crazy right now with like watching the Sandman series on Netflix, because Sandman was one of the comics that really got me hooked on comics I mean I'd read comics before that but like that was one of the ones in high school that I was like totally making into my identity um for a while there and then I read a lot of science fiction I read a lot of fantasy um I was super into sci-fi I love science fiction I've, I've written prose like science fiction and occasionally fantasy too but mostly science fiction I don't really I'm not sure why exactly I got into like the sort of harder edge of fantasy and um, sort of tech and science oriented stuff. But that was what I was obsessed with in high school, uh, high school. Also the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I read a lot of like sort of funny fantasy and science fiction, most of which is not very good, but Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is really great. And later I discovered Terry Pratchett and Terry Pratchett is really great, but I didn't actually didn't get into Terry Pratchett until college. So I wasn't, wasn't able to be totally obsessed with him when I was in high school. Oh, and of course, Daniel Pinkwater, who's like, um, my, my, my mentor is um, great children's, mostly children's book writer, Daniel Pinkwater. I really loved his stuff. And I actually made a point of reading like everything by him in high school. I just order his books from the library and binge them. So those were, those were some of my high school reading obsessions. I read a lot. <laughs> I don't read as much now because I'm drawing and writing all the time. So I don't have as much time to read, which is incredibly sad. I can imagine. I love thinking back though and asking people about what they read when they were younger, because especially for me, if I pick up a book that I read at that time, it can transport me right back to whatever was going on. Oh yeah. Yeah. I've got a bunch of, I I tracked down and like rebought a bunch of books I had as a kid because I'm nostalgic about all of them. I love that. I just bought my, I just went, I was just home in like um, Pittsburgh visiting my parents and um, they, they have some of my old books and I brought back this like creepy book of fairy tales that I had this book the book of British fairy tales my aunt brought it to me from England when I was a kid and it has these very beautiful but disturbing like woodcut style illustrations and this and these it's these very obscure weird old British fairy tales um and I picked it up it's actually I realized I did not realize this but the writer it was written by Alan Garner who I actually has gone on to be I actually discovered later and became one of my favorite like sort of children's YA novelists and he writes a lot of like sort of just weird like fairy stuff that's very steeped in British folklore which I love and so I got this book and I was very I'm like very nostalgic about it um but at the same time it's a book that um it turns out I like that I found I discovered the author independently later on and like fell in love with him all over again Oh, I feel like I would like that. I loved Grimm's fairy tales when I was younger, but not the like redone cutesy ones, like the darker uh, ones. Yeah. Um, oh, actually that was another obsession of mine in high school. Definitely. I like, got into folklore and fairy tales, which um, might seem a little weird in high for high school, but like um, one thing, I mean, because I'm old, I was in high school in the nineties and that was when um, the Jim Henson hour was on television. It was this TV show that was like Jim Henson, like introducing different, interesting like experimental Muppet stuff um and one of the things they did was the storyteller which was a series where they adapt different like old weird folk tales 
sort of old, weird, dark folk tales, very much similar to what these, what Tenson did with like Dark Crystal and Labyrinth. And I love the storyteller. They got they did it because Henson's daughter was like studying folklore and like was interested in all these strange old folk tales. And I was obsessed with it because I loved I loved Muppets and I loved fairy tales. And this was like my perfect show. They've never made a show again that was so perfect for me. So yeah, I read lots of weird old fairy tales, lots of like very early stuff. And then I studied folklore for a bit in college as well I was like I took classes with like Nancy Willard who's a children's writer wonderful wonderful children's writer and uh, she did a class on folklore and fairy tales where we studied um studied folklore it was really fun I wrote a paper on Appalachian jack tales anyway that yeah that's there we go that's another high school reading obsession weird fairy tales I, and the thing I love too about fairy tales is like you touched on atmosphere like the atmosphere yeah. and I love like the creepy force force they terrify me, but they fascinate me. I love being in them. Um, and I love the forest surrounding Willow Wheat Manor. Like, it seems like it would be such an ideal place. Like the Gothic castle, complete with the friendly ghost. Yeah, the ghost is friendly. <laughs> yeah, the ocean. I definitely wouldn't mind staying there for a while. Mm-hmm. So what would your ideal alternate universe look like? Willow Wheat Manor is really nice. It does look like a great place. Um yeah, it has a beach, it has a strand, it has it has a moor, it has all of your standard settings. I realized talking about my high school obsessions that it would probably be the galaxy and the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy. There's something about like the particular world that Douglas Adams created in that book where it's just a whole bunch of like seedy space bums um, just hitchhiking around the different weird planets and sampling the local atmosphere and food and drinks and um fighting the power it's this is like there's certain there's a sort of like age there's, there's this interesting mood of like 90 early like 970s early 80s like um people aging out of like the hippie life and like being annoyed at like thatcher's regime and wanting to just get out and like bum around to different places and it's this it's this great mood that um i really love and i when i was in high school i definitely wanted to be abducted by an alien spacecraft so i could go to some strange planet with with like deadly drinks and weird monsters and things and probably plumbing because See, that's the thing they would all the spaceship would have plumbing there would be electricity and plumbing and and like other amenities which is important to me if i'm going to another you know a completely different realm so yeah outer space would be pretty good yeah i just went camping and i was very excited when um i found out there was plumbing right there like this oh. is really important to me. I need running water, a shower, and a toilet. <laughs> it's really good. There's so many. Yeah, no, there's a lot of modern inventions that I like to have around. So I love the scene where Haley points out the historical <laughs> inaccuracies in the manor, telling Lawrence that it's about three centuries and four European architectural traditions smushed together. Here you use historical inaccuracies in part to set the product tone of the novel, where the action of the novel is layered with humor and cheekiness. What are some of your favorite anachronisms in film or literature? And when do you feel that historical inaccuracies are effective versus problematic as a creative tool? Wow, I I like it. I mean, I guess I don't mind historical inaccuracies. I like it best when they're knowledgeable as opposed to, you know, the result of someone not knowing or researching very much. But I don't mind, I don't mind inaccuracy. I'm like, I'm, I'm kind of into all of the, the current, um, the, the, the deliberately inaccurate um, period dramedies that are going on right now, like, like the great, which I absolutely adore, even though a lot of the details are not um, chronologically correct with, uh, for Catherine the Great, but it still, it still captures the mood a lot. Also, um, Sofia Coppola's Marie Antoinette is a, movie that's you know it, it it feels contemporary and it's historically it's it's you know the it's good not totally accurate but I think it captures it captures the feel of Marie Antoinette's court as like a modern audience could understand it which is maybe more important than being 100% accurate uh, you know like I, I also was obsessed with Shakespeare in high school wow I'm getting into like now I'm remembering like everything I read in high school I made a point of reading the entire works of Shakespeare before I went to college that was like something I wanted to do the summer before I went to college I don't know why but I, it led to me becoming totally 
a total Shakespeare buff. And like, you know, like um, Shakespeare is historically inaccurate. The, the, the time, writers at the time did not care about being historically a- accurate about stories. There's like clocks and Julius Caesar and people are wearing pants and things. They don't care. They just, they did everything in modern dress. And I mean, they kind of, they, to a degree they had to, because they didn't have like tons of reference to look at as you would have today, but also they just, but it was also effective in like getting across how these things would feel without making them feel. Whereas if you make things too historically correct, it feels you know, it feels like the past. You don't, you're looking at the past. You're not living in the past. It's, it's a hard thing to capture. So I don't know. I don't mind historical inaccuracies. I'm not one of those people who's like constantly pointing out problems, like, like people wearing the wrong buttons and movies and things. It kind of bugs me when they don't think very much. It, it, it bothers me when the historical, with the inaccurate version is less interesting than the real version, because often the real version of history is a lot more interesting than what people make up. But, you know, obviously in Willow Weep Manor, the great, yes, the great thing about, I guess, like spoilers, Willow Weep Manor is not actually, does not actually exist in the past. It's, um, it's not, it's not strictly speaking a real place, or maybe it's, it's real, but not part of our universe. Um, so it's not really set in like, it's not, it doesn't really exist in the 18th or 19th centuries. Um, so the great thing about that was that I did not have to be historically inaccurate. And yes, I could like hang a hat on it and have Haley actually point out that the, the, the mansion does not belong to any particular period of history and her outfit does not belong to any particular period of history. And the references are all over the place as far as time goes and as far as literature goes. And that, that gave me a really easy out where I could just make up whatever I wanted, which is great. I should just do this all the time. I should set every story in some world that's that's not connected. That's literally not connected to our, it's, it's literally tenuously connected to our reality. So it doesn't have to be the same kind of thing. That's probably why I like writing science fiction a lot, because then I can just make up a world where, you know, the rules are a little different. I love that. I have not watched that film, the Marie Antoinette um, with Kirsten Dunst. Yes. Yes. I like it a lot. I like, um, I like Sophia Coppola a lot in general, actually. Yeah. It might be my favorite of her movies. So another thing I had so much fun and really appreciated in the novel was the smart and witty way in which you explored mm-hmm. and played with a variety of tropes. Mm-hmm. One of the characters in the book, Constance, is a celestial mechanic, but shows up as a governess because she yeah. says, I appear as stern as a stern governess for your convenience, as this should be a familiar and therefore comforting trope in your tiny slice of reality. What were some of the challenges of adapting these tropes to your story? And what were your favorite parts about playing with them? <laughs> somebody else pointed this out to me once but like I I tend to like the write stories where characters are at least semi-aware that they're in a fictional story and have to play by the rules of the story that was something that happened a lot in Narbonic where the characters are mad scientists and I established like part of being a mad scientist is that you have to follow mad science rules that's part of being mad is that you have to have you have to follow certain rules you have to behave you know irrationally and erratically and you have to have a bunch of bubbling chemicals in your lab, whether or not you're a chemist and you have to wear a lab coat, even if it doesn't make sense, because you have to follow, you have, you have to be a, follow the rules of mad science to be a mad scientist. And I kind of like ended up doing, I end up doing this a lot in my stories and I don't know why, I guess it's because I really like metafictional stuff. Um, that's, that's not a high school obsession. It's like a college obsession. I was reading tons and tons of like um, modernist and metafictional and postmodernist um, fiction and, just really enjoying the the idea of like calling attention to the story as a story and playing around with tropes in it. That was probably also a thing I liked about fairy tales is that they have rules that have to be followed. And you can also swap out the elements of fairy tales and make new stories and switch them around. And it's it's very self it's it's very self-aware. So I don't know. I like the self-awareness and I like I like it when char- I kind of do like to write stories where characters are self-aware about their situation in the story. So it was a lot of fun to do that with um, Willow Wing Manor. And again, I wrote a bunch of these, a bunch of Gothic novels and then like wrote down lists of things that like tropes that could happen in the book, many of which I managed to get in, probably not all of them, but definitely a lot. And oddly, I like the mad, mad scientists are kind of a gothic trope, but I didn't have mad scientists. I don't have like, um, I don't have a lot of, there's not a lot of fantasy gothic tropes in Willow Wheat Manor, except for the ghost. Other than that, it's sort of not less fantasy stuff, but it was super fun. Um, the next book, the sequel, um, which I probably can't talk about too much, but it involves introducing another genre of literature with its own set of tropes, which kind of come up against the tropes in Willow Wheat Manor. 
And we brain, Chris and I brainstormed about that for a while and gave some thought to what would be a genre that's um, sort of a descendant of Gothic literature, but also be very different from it. And um, that's that will happen in the next book. And it gets even more into people having to deal with um, the rules of what they are and their, what their world is and when it's important to break those rules. Yeah, I definitely love the self-awareness and how they were always kind of calling attention to it throughout the novel. Like, oh yeah, oh, that person, like I'm this person from the novels. Um, so part of the character development in The Dwellers of Willowweet Manor is having them rewrite themselves and break off from the Gothic romance stereotypes and stock yes. character designations. <laughs> For instance, Cuthbert is the fact feckless and profligate heir, Lawrence, the troubled master of the house. <laughs> if you were to be cast in a gothic romance, what character role would you pick and how would you break the mold, so to speak? Wow, that's an amazing question. I mean, I'd kind of like to be a mad scientist, but I'd probably be more like some sort of hag. It feels like it'd be good to be like a like a weird lady in the woods, which I also have in Willow Wheat Manor. I have a, um, I have a uh, hermitess. Um, it could have been a hermit, but we decided to do a hermitess, and that was based on the fact that I went to um, I went to England for and went out while I was working on this. My parents uh, lived in England for two years, and during that time, I went to visit them, and we went to visit old um, manor houses and stuff, which are amazing. A lot of them are really beautifully kept up by the National Trust, and one of them had like um, a, a hermitage, like a little a little one, like there's. They would build like rich people would build these little shacks on their properties for like a hermit to live in. And it's just like it's just like a tiny little house in the woods and they would have somebody just like live there and just be a hermit. And like it was like having a it's basically like having a garden gnome, but like a full size human person like in your in your yard. And this was, I obviously loved this idea. And I like put it in Willow Wheat Manor because I was so I was so delighted by the concept and that would actually that seems like it'd be a pretty good lifestyle for me I would just live on somebody's pro like live in somebody's woods and um I could probably write a lot but yeah I mean it would I think like crazy like batty old lady in the woods would be a pretty good um pretty good character to, to be that's that's a pretty good gothic character and I, I don't even know if I'd want to break the mold it seems very comfortable I could I could probably do that I'd break the mold by trying to figure out how to get plumbing in there because that's my eternal concern but other than that I would be pretty comfortable I love that I feel like I Tegan would probably back this up I feel like I would be the witch in the forest <laughs> yeah it's a good job right people great I can see you stay over there <laughs> <laughs> what would I be Ash I don't know I think I could probably be in the woods as well like when I want to read and stuff I'm pretty like that like my family would be like yeah she wants you all to go away but yeah, right I now like a scholar like a scholar or a librarian that would like, be good too like working in a lot a big a great the, the library of the great house would be good too so there are many points in this book that had me literally laughing out loud. The oh, sarcasm, good. wit, and banter was excellent. Thank Why you. was it important for you to add humor into the story? And what were some of the challenges of doing so since humor is both a talent and a craft? <laughs> I have a hard time writing things that are not humor. I'm trying to like, because I, I think this started because I was very shy in school. And in like fifth grade, I had... Um, what I really, and, and one thing I was very shy about, even though I liked writing was I was very shy about sharing my writing and I could not stand to hear it read out loud, much less read it out loud myself. It was just my own writing. I could not take at all. Um, and I would just like ball up and start crying. And then in fifth grade, I had a teacher who made us like write, do a writing assignment every week. And then we would have to read them out loud to the class. And I could not take this at all. It was just awful. Even though I loved the writing part until I figured out that if I could get people to laugh when I was writing, that it was okay. I felt much better. And so I just started writing funny stuff and trying to get people to laugh. And that was, uh, that was the start of writing humor. And now it's really hard to not be kind of fun funny, or at least sort of sardonic when I'm writing, or at least try to be funny. I don't know if I'm actually funny, but I at least try to be funny. Um, I, I'm like, like I said, I'm really into horror right now. I'm trying to write horror and it's hard because I'm, trying to I'm used to being funny and I'm trying to turn that around to being scary which is actually a very similar skill but um and yet completely different there's um a great um horror manga artist Kazuo Miz 
And um, he also wrote like a comedy manga that was very popular at some point. And his, his comment was that he said, he said once that uh, if you're doing the chasing, it's, it's comedy. And if you're being chased, it's horror. And that's the difference between comedy and horror. And I, I love that thought, but I find it hard to turn it around so they can write like scary or dramatic stuff or even or sad stuff instead of funny stuff. I kind of turn, make everything funny. And it was, you know, it's really funny, fun writing funny stuff for Willie Wait Manor. It was really hard not to make it funny. We made a bunch of like funny characters and then we tried to get them to do funny things. It was mostly just creating the funny characters and letting them go because they're, they're all very fun to write. Oh yeah. I like Ashley. I was laughing out loud um, as I was reading it. Um, it reminds me a lot of my, like what you were saying about not being able to turn the humor off, like of my dad, because he's a photographer. So he'd always be trying to get people to genuinely smile um, oh, yeah. when you're taking portraits and he'd be like, you know, because they try not to smile. And he's like, remember, this photo's for your mom. He <laughs> <laughs> just a smile. And so he would make a lot of jokes with them. And now it's hard Aww. for me. Anywhere he goes, he's always like making jokes with everybody. And they're like, <laughs> the cashier at the grocery mart, who's usually like 16, is like, why is this? Oh, that's nice. I like trying to make me laugh. Um, but I love it. Um, and he's like very quick as well. Just yeah, nice. I'm not I'm not usually casually funny. I have to sit down and work at it <laughs> on paper. So one of the really funny parts is the information guidebook titled Getting to Know Your Gasket Universe. <laughs> and yes. Ashley touched on the celestial mechanic before. She's so cute and yet so cutthroat <laughs> when she says things like, Good luck. If you fail, no one will save you. Yes. <laughs> I think she should write Ikea instruction manuals, um, where in the middle she provides marriage counseling and phone numbers for help. Um, so what novels have made you laugh out loud? Wow. So yeah, the gas, the, the, the gas, the uh, celestial mechanics section in Willowy Manor is pretty short and it's definitely the one that's extremely influenced by Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which again was like probably one of the first, well, I don't know if it's the first book I really, it was a book that I was very very taken with and kind of obsessed with the humor in that for a long time i like had the the original radio show it's actually based on a radio show it's a radio show first which douglas adams and adapted into a novel and i had the radio show on tape and in my like junior year of college i went um abroad to ireland and this was before like wireless internet and things like that so um the only entertainment I had was like a stack of cassette tapes and a Walkman that I took with me and books obviously and so I just I listened to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy radio show on tape over and over and I kind of probably lodged itself in my brain permanently so there's like there's that and like um again Terry Pratchett's This World books I adore and I've read I actually have not read all of them I read almost all of them I read like 50 of them and I was, and then I just suddenly something switched, a switch clicked in my brain where I said, I've read enough Terry Pratchett for a while now and I've gone off and done other things, which happens to me at times with different writers or style or genres. Uh, but that's still a lot of Terry Pratchett and it's a big influence on me. My favorite, my favorite is, my favorites are probably Witches Abroad, of the Discworld books. My favorites are probably Witches Abroad and Hogfather, and those are both extremely meta-textual, self-referential books, which again is a thing I'm into. Uh, so there, there's that, like there's a lot of, there's some classic comedy books that are really great. I was just thinking the other day about um, Three, Men in a, in, in Three Men in a Boat, which is a sort of classic British humorous novel. It still, it still holds up extremely well. It's very good. And um, Cold Comfort Farm is also, is another book that is also about basic it's it's very similar it's another deconstructing tropes novel and it's another big influence on willow wheat manor it's um it's odd because it's deconstructing a genre that doesn't kind of doesn't exist anymore the sort of like gothic rural drama um like jude the obscure sort of things um and it's, it's very funny though it's very good it's about this like it's written about the 1920s and it's about this um perky young modern woman who goes off to this um, horrible, desolate farmland straight out of a very grim um, rural Gothic novel. And everyone's, everyone's horrible and sinister and miserable. And she kind of like 
gives them all makeovers, which is crazy. <laughs> that's the that's the book that where the phrase something nasty in the woodshed came from, which is sometimes used as like a catch-all reference to some horrible thing because one of the characters is this old lady who's obsessed with something terrible that happened in the woodshed. And also we'll talk about something nasty in the woodshed. So I don't know. I've read a lot. Of, I, I've, I've read a fair amount of like humorous books, but it's, it's very hard. I think it's very hard to write, maybe very hard to write humor. So the number of ones that actually maybe like laugh hysterically are, are rare. They are rare and precious. Keegan, do you remember books on tape? I remember going to the library and getting the books on tape. They were in those big giant Ziploc bags with the handles on this like tourney rack. Yes. Oh, that was my favorite part of the week. <laughs> yes. Well, now you just got, got audio books, but yeah, you used to have to get a, <laughs> rent a really filthy plastic bag from the library. Yes. Oh, those good old plastic bags. <laughs> and then kids don't understand that. Like, please rewind like blockbuster thing. Be kind. Please rewind like that will never make yeah. sense to them. They're like, rewind what? Like, what are because I was trying to explain it to my eight year old son. I'm like, yeah, because we used to have to put them in and like rewind it. He's like, I don't get it. We're talking about. Um, so my dad actually gave me the um, Three Men in a Boat uh, by Jerome, and I have a yeah folio of Cold Comfort Farm, but I haven't read it. I watched like a movie adaptation, yes. um, but I haven't read it yet. Um, no, I don't like the movie as much. It's got a really good cast, but I don't think they have the the the, the timing right on the comedy. Some the comedy doesn't work. It's really hard. It'd be really hard to adapt a comedy book. So I read a quote from Anthony Balducci where he says, historically, when a formula grows tired, as in the case (laughs) of moralistic melodramas in the 1910s, it retains value only as a parody, as demonstrated by the Buster Keaton shorts that mocked that genre. In popular culture, film, music, and literature, parodies are everywhere what do you think the value of a parody is as a creative art form wow that's a complicated question i mean you know it's it's um as a gen x or like sarcasm is my my primary language so it's very hard for me to speak without being sarcastic or parodying something at all but um i don't know if like uh, what we're doing with willow wheat manor is like straight up parody and it's it's it's, it's more of a sort of actually very much what Balducci is talking about there which is sort of like taking the formula apart and rebuilding it to see what it, what works and what doesn't work about it and um that that can that can parody can do that but it can also yeah also be more more facile but um I think yeah we are kind of trying to like um sort of we just pick the genre and um kind of want to take it apart see what's interesting about it I don't, again, I'm not 100% sure why Chris wanted uh, gothic novels specifically, aside from the fact that it'd be fun to draw, but it gave us a chance to think about that genre. And also, I guess, genre, more broadly genre fiction in general, because once you start thinking about the tropes in one particular genre, the elements in it, then you can think about other ones as well. And you can think about, you know, the, the assumptions underlying, you know, literature in general. And then it gets very lofty, um, at least theoretically. Uh, like I said, like um, the, the sequel will involve picking apart another genre. So we'll have like two different battling genres with battling assumptions. But I think there are probably underlying similar assumptions behind both of them that are the assumptions under all fiction. And I guess I guess that's more or less what parody is supposed to do. But I guess parody can also just goof around with stuff for fun too. It doesn't. It doesn't have to be. Doesn't have to have a deep purpose. So Haley is overwhelmed by the adversity she is <laughs> facing and told it won't be easy. The bile is scary, and you are a simple girl covered in soup. But you do have power. What would you say that your superpower is? Um, first of all, thank you for using that quote. It's a good quote from that book. I'm glad you picked out like all the best lines to like mention in this podcast, which makes my book sound very good. And um, my superpower is that I I'm. My hands are constantly moving. I can't not do something with my hands. So I have to be drawing and writing all the time. It would it would be nice if I could just like stop for a second, but I'm very uncomfortable if I'm not doing something, um, something kind of creative and kind of involving my hands. And so I'm, always, I'm, I'm, I'm drawing all the time and I write a lot as well. 
mostly drawing and doodle constantly, but the doodles are all for stories. So I guess, I guess that's my superpower. That's what I came up with off the top of my head. So I'm going to stick with that. Sounds good. I don't know what my superpower would be at all. Um, so you mentioned earlier about when you were preparing for the novel, reading Gothic and picking out all the various tropes. So ties into my next question where I thought it would be fun to do this or that questions specifically (laughs) related to Gothic romances. Maybe this could be for a future novel. Who knows? Let's see what, (laughs) let's see what we come up with. Um, It's a bit like, what was that game um, where you'd pick out random words to make, and it was like a story. It was like a lib, Mad Libs. Oh, was it Corpse? Like where you kind of fill in the different words. You're like, pick an adverb, make a story. Yes. So we're going to do that with tropes. (laughs) Um, So for the first question, Emily Bronte or Charlotte Bronte? Probably Emily Bronte because I like Wuthering Heights a lot. And um, I probably like Wuthering Heights better than Jane Eyre. So I guess I'm going to say Wuthering Heights. I don't I, I it's not even for the romance it's just for the, the the strangeness of the whole thing it's this very it's a really very odd book that gets into strange stuff about like degeneration between like generations of people and genetics coming back to haunt you and there's there's a ghost in it for like and then that that's never explained again um i actually put in the um one of, i i have references to both of those books in Willow Wheat Manor. And I also put in a reference to the um, Kate Bush song, Wuthering Heights. Um, It is. So I have, I have Haley do the dance from Kate Bush's Wuthering Heights video. And like one person has noticed it and I'm, my cousin noticed it. And I was so, I was so proud of him. Like, thank you. Thank you for enjoying Kate Bush videos. So I guess, I guess probably Emily, the Brontes are very odd and they they live a very Gothic life themselves. Like the house that they lived on at the end of the cemetery was actually it was in this town that had a horrible like water poisoning and it was like the deadliest place to live in England outside of London and first of all it's terrible that London was was so incredibly toxic that it was a very deadly place to live but after that was like the town where the Brontes lived because they like the well water was so toxic anyway and there and you know they had fascinating family anyway. yeah they're they're doing an um another film um i just saw the trailer yesterday actually about emily i think it's called emily yeah um and i was like yeah they had a very interesting they're a fascinating group the brontes yes definitely there are other people who are like way more into bronte lore than i am and are probably very frustrated that i'm not getting more in depth in talking about Bronte. well i'm like i'm like you i think of um Kate Bush which she's had a massive um she's back revitalization because of stranger things and I'm like they're gonna listen to Wuthering Heights and go what is it's so good you just song about Wuthering Heights you just song about you listening Uh, songs about like all my favorite books well I've watched that movie with Laurence Olivier um oh yeah for since I was four and so um I knew that song as well. So I know what it's about and why it's like spooky and creepy. And then I'm like, they're going to watch this and have no idea what's going on. That's right. But I love it. Um, so next question is curse or mysterious stranger? Ooh, maybe a curse. I wouldn't really want to be cursed, but I'd be kind of curious about to see, to see a curse work. Whereas, I mean, strangers are, I, I'm a little frightened. I'm, maybe more, I'm more frightened of strangers than I am of curses. So I'm going to go with curse. Excellent. And I might know the answer to this. I don't know. Um, math scientist or ghost? As much as I love ghosts, it's got to be mad scientist. Mad scientist are my brand. Yes. So tragic death or madness? I get madness. Go madness. Big fan of the madness. Definitely. Dark forest or derelict mansion? That's hard. They're both really cool. Um, you know, I'm going to go, I'm going to say derelict mansion. I think it would be right. I just love old abandoned places so I'm as much as I love wandering around a dark and spooky forest I think I would like to explore a a derelict mansion same so last one hopeless or hopeful ending oh hopeful yeah all right and that's your next book homework 
<laughs> that's my next book. It'll have a mad scientist and madness at a mansion and a hopeful. Actually, that sounds like a good book. Yeah. A curse, sounds- mad scientist, madness, and a derelict mansion with a happy and hopeful ending. That actually sounds very doable. I love that. And speaking of new or next books, so you already answered my question about whether yes. or not we will be seeing more of Haley and her friends. And I'm so excited. Yes. So are you able to tell us, or do you know when it, that book is going to be coming out yet? Or not for a while, not for a while. Cause Chris hasn't started drawing yet. I've written the script. Um, I'm kind of, we're kind of waiting for, to get a pass, to get like notes from our editor. And then I think I'll do a rewrite and Chris will start drawing it. So it'll take a while because it takes a while to draw a graphic novel. So I don't know, maybe not for a couple more years, but it'll happen. And I've got other books. I've got other graphic novels in the pipeline. I have a book called Steam and I have no idea when that's coming out, but that's been in the works for a while. And um, I have some others that I'm trying to sell at the moment. Steam is about mad science. I'm so excited. (laughs) Thank you so much for being here with us. Oh my gosh, thank you so much. The Dire Days of Willow Wheat Manor can be purchased anywhere books are sold. You can keep up to date with Shannon by visiting her website at www.shannon.com and by visiting her on Twitter at at Shannon Garrity. All links will be provided in the show notes. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, please leave us a review. It really helps. Also, don't forget to visit us on Instagram to continue the conversation, be notified of bonus episodes, and keep up to date with what we are currently reading. We put up new episodes every other Friday.